This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. You're about to hear from Disciple First, a Discipleship.org partner. But before we jump into this episode, I want to share with you a related resource written by Disciple First's founder. It's something you can download for free. Founder Craig Etheridge wrote Invest in a Few. It's a short ebook about getting started with discipleship personally by investing in just a few people. It's a short, practical, and relatable resource. Download it at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's episode features the organization called Disciple First, and it's from their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Leading Your Church to Become an Intentional Disciple Making Church. The episode for today is Developing Disciple Making Leaders, featuring Chris Moody. Take a listen. All righty, let's get going. Let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Christopher Moody. I am the lead pastor of the historic First Baptist Church in Beaumont, Texas, 150-year-old church in two years, will be 150 years, and I pastored there for 12 years. I'm also a 13-year senior at Liberty University. I've been a professor of systematic theology at Liberty for 13 years. I am an assistant professor and an instructional mentor for Liberty. I'm also a curriculum uh, expert with uh, Theology 2. They call me, sounds precocious, but subject matter expert. And so I get to have my fingers in on leadership development from a seminary level. Um, our church is a revitalization church. After 148 years, you can imagine it's a revitalization church. Um, when I started 10, 12 years ago, we had 200 in small groups, and now we're about 800. And so we have seen a lot of growth and uh, that growth came as a result of disciple-making, and disciple-making is our church's heart, and it also is the, obviously the heart of this conference. So we're going to spend some time asking questions about leadership development. Now, I make a joke with students at seminary as well as our church that the five steps of most leadership things are pray, 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 and then lead, or in this case, disciple and so when I think of leadership development, I'll, I'll make this statement real quick, real fast, real easy. We can almost go home. That the way you make leaders is you disciple them to be leaders. Right? And I know that's not worth the price of admission, but that is the truth. That most answers, once you have the culture and the tools and the people who are disciple makers, uh, most of the answers to most leadership problems, even when it's a problem with leadership itself, is discipling. Um, now, a couple of quick comments. One's on the board. Uh, what, first comment is language matters. When it comes to leadership development at our church, uh, we have a very tight uh, vocab when it comes to how we use words, uh, the, the pathway of discipling. We talked about that in the first session. The vision that is cast has to be tight. So developing leadership means we speak the same way and we talk the same way. So that's uh, that, that's definitely top of the list. Second is, and this is a problem in deacon training and elder training, um, and you probably inherited a church just like I did where you had people that were in the wrong positions. Um, they were the most qualified at the time. I hate that word, most qualified. Uh, my kids are now teenagers, but I remember when I first came to our church, they were all little kids, and every Every time I'd come home at the end of a day, for the most part, and walk into their room, I'd find that little toy with all the shapes, you know the ones, plastic, and it has all these shapes, and they've got to fit the circle and the circle and the triangle and the Today's triangle. Today's episode and features Craig Etheridge, Without doubt, without a, without was fail, a during triangle the would be jammed in the circle, and the circle would be jammed in the square, to an right, people in the wrong disciple-making church. And so to, and to quote something that's as old as, I guess, time itself, right, or as old as at least Jim Collins in the 90s in the good to great era that we need to get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. And partly, part, part of the blessing of that is you have a Bible that tells you what it means to be qualified uh, for a deacon position or an elder position or a 
leadership position. And so taking advantage of those qualifications, not to find the most qualified, but to find qualified. So as we think about developing leaders, that's huge. Language matter, find the qualified. And then when it comes to leadership development in a disciple-making movement, to only elevate leaders to those top positions who are leading disciplers. That's my final quick little point, is that they have to be leading disciplers. For instance, the deacons of our faith family and the elders of our faith family, all of them at this point in our church's history, all of them have reproduced themselves twice, and at least one of their disciples has reproduced themselves. And so if you're going to raise up a reproducing church, then your leadership cannot be trying to sell that something they don't have. Right? You can't give away that which you don't have. And if we're going to become this disciple-making movement that God has planned, then we've got to have our leading disciplers at the, at the front of the bus. And so that's what we've done. It takes a while. You've got to be patient. Nothing in disciple-making culture is a quick fix. And so if you're here at this conference, you most likely already know that. This tends to be a conference for people that, that are kind of in, they already understand. They're just looking for more information and how to connect with it and move forward. And so let me, let me begin with this question. I'm giving you some quick little tips. Um, but let me ask this question. Are leaders made or are they born? It's an age-old question of nature versus nurture. And sure enough, there are some leaders who are born with a certain charisma or certain competency. But within the Church of Christ, especially with discipling at its heart, uh, I've got to fudge on the other side that leaders aren't born, they're made you have to develop them. Instead of praying that you know some leader from another church would get upset and move over to your church, <laughs> and you have a, a leader already made coming into your church, instead of praying that, bring them up from within. That's the discipler's heart. That's the rhythm of a discipling ministry, that you disciple them into leadership. So I've given you a little acrostic here that we use when it comes to our leadership. We start first with leadership maturity, character. And we're looking for that as we're farming, as we're creating this, we have a disciple's path and now we have a leadership pipeline and that pipeline, we're looking for character, right? As the leaders go, so the church goes. So you've got to start there. The Bible emphasizes that over a lot of other things. And then of course, leaders have abilities. And so we're looking to disciple, not just maturity, we're looking to disciple abilities, certain competencies. Um, about speaking, about leading, organizing, holding people's feet to the fire. Here's the beauty of what we've seen in our church is we have some pretty stellar leaders who have been discipled because the heart of discipling is accountability. We'll cover that in a little bit. And when you have a culture that has no stomach for accountability, but yet you're bringing up people within a church culture that do have a stomach for accountability as Martin Luther used to say, not a instance of repentance, but a lifestyle of repentance, right? When you have that, you create a change in the culture of your church where people can stomach accountability. So do they have an ability to hold other people accountable? Do they have an ability in, in that area? Is there competency? And then, of course, discipling is uh, what it is to lead in the church of Jesus. Jesus wants his church the way he designed it. And, he, and that's where we begin, and that's where we end, disciple. And so in terms of leaders, they, if they're going to be leaders, they have to be disciplers. And then, of course, giving them confidence and experiences. You've got to give them on-the-job training. So a little quick uh, couple of things there. Now let's get to your, your notes. Let me tell you a story and introduce somebody. Um, I love horses. Anybody else a horse fan? We have horses. We, have, uh, we just bought another one this week. And we're going at Thanksgiving to uh, New Mexico to pick up a, a six-month-old. I love horses. So I was really excited in 2018 when Justify won the 150th Belmont Stakes in New York by one and three-fourths links, making him the only the 13th Triple Crown winner in history and the second in four years. Of course, who is the other, right? American Pharaoh. He ended a 37-year drought. Again, another sweep of the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Justify won Belmont starting from the rail. And the last Triple Crown to win that, that way was Secretariat 45 years ago. 
Justify is the second horse to capture the triple, triple crown undefeated, joining Seattle Slough. Justify, who is 6-0, and is the first horse to sweep the series without racing at age two. Justify beat nine others to win. He defeated 35 horses and crossed the Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and Belmont. Now, my question about that is, what is the secret sauce? What is the secret sauce to justify winning? It's the trainer. Bob Baffert. Bafferty, or Baffert, Baffery, Baffert, actually, joins Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, the only other trainer to win the Triple Crown two times. Fitzsimmons won it in 1930 and 1935, but Baffert won with American Pharaoh. So the trainer of American Pharaoh is the same trainer as uh, Justify. I love trainers. And our leaders have, have to have that DNA. And if you're going to train up leaders, you train them up to be trainers, not managers, right? Here's a great quote. Put the D.L. Moody quote. I'm not related. I wish I was. It is better to train 10 people than to do the work of 10 people, but it's harder. It's very much harder. And that's what we're going to talk about. So I want to introduce you to somebody. Fellman, stand up. This is Fellman Malvo. Kind of introduce yourself. He's going to be our, our testimony of the day. Uh, hi, my name is Felon Malvo. Um, I am a resident pastor with uh, Dr. Moody at First Baptist, uh, currently uh, in school at Liberty University Online, pursuing a um, master's in Christian ministry. Excellent. This is one of my disciples. I've been discipling him for about nine months, and he is a leader being raised up in our church. He started as uh, an outsider, then became a partner, a member of the church, then he became a volunteer, and now he is in a residency program at our church. And he is going to be the story. When it comes to disciple-making and leadership development, the, the metrics of such work is stories. Discipling requires you to tell stories. And if you're from a Baptist circle of influence, this doesn't necessarily fit on the annual church profile that you have to turn in. But the stories that go with disciple-making is how you get the traction, feel the rhythm, see, sense the reality. So I'm going to let him tell a testimony about some of the tools. So we're going to talk in our remaining time about the hands and the heart of a discipler. And those are really two things that are hard to develop. Developing a leader who has the hands of the discipler and developing a leader who has the heart of a discipler are two different things and they're the latter is harder than the former. So let's start with the hands. I've given you a, an ABC list. Uh, let's start with the first. Uh, this is at the top of the list because it's at the top of the culture of leaders in a disciple-making church, and that is accountability. The A stands for accountability. Of course, the keys to such are confidentiality, authenticity, obedience. But this gives teeth to your leaders. I hear this from our leaders a lot. How do I hold people's feet to the fire? How do I how do I develop people who can hold people's feet to the fire? Nobody's, you know, they have responsibilities, they have roles, they have standards, and they're not meeting it. How do I create people who not only can meet those standards, but help other people meet those standards? Well, in discipling somebody in general, you get accountability through accountability cards, through hedges of protection you put up. I know our church um, uses covenant eyes with our men's discipling groups. We use uh, accountability cards. Our ladies have their cards, and we have ours, and we begin 15 minutes at the beginning of every D group with accountability. So that culture, as that crucial ingredient of the Holy Spirit's laboratory, that culture of accountability um, creates opportunity. So, Thelma, tell us about how that's looked in the last year in your life. Um, I guess to clarify, um, you know, the first thing, this is all new to me as far as discipleship. Um, being a believer is not being discipled completely is. So the fact that someone, in this case, my pastor, would identify and say there is something in you and to offer up an opportunity to spend time with me together, um, that was a pretty sweet invitation. And so, to be honest, there's nothing exciting about accountability. I mean, who <laughs> wants to expose my junk, my challenges, my weaknesses to someone else. But um, it's been a very sweet, tangible experience because, again, he created an environment and brought me in, and the accountability works both ways. How did I create that environment? Just the invite, the transparency, 
that it wasn't just, hey, I want to be accountable to you, but here's where I want you to be accountable to me. And so all the titles were stripped. It didn't matter he was Dr. Moody or he was my pastor. He was a, a man of God, a Christian brother, and he approached me as such. Mm. And, and that broke down, you know, my, um, I guess, traditional experiences prior to my first interaction with you. Sweet. So as we make a leader, maturity, ability, discipling, how do you do any of this, even experience? How do you do any of this without accountability? Amen? This is the hands of leadership development, accountability. It's, it's, it's a power tool. <laughs> I love power tools. I'm a rigid fan. I have all rigid power tools. Some of y'all are DeWalt fans, I know. But within, the pro, within this list, this is a major power tool. Listen to C.H. Spurgeon. He says, It is that which thou art most loath to hear that thou hast most need to hear. Instead of being angry with him who points it out to thee, thou shouldest be willing to pay him for doing it. Right? When my, my middle child heard me read that out loud in, in a service, he said, Dad, you'll be rich. Right? I'm always holding people's feet to the fire. Power tool number two, power tool number two, Bible. Got to have that in there. So you give them teeth and then you give them a manual. And of course, this tool of discipling and bringing up leaders is involves memorization, involves inductive Bible study, involves obedience. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, abide in my word, uh, consistent in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. All right, talk to us about how that's looked, Felman. Um, I guess from a, for me, from a Bible perspective, um, having someone actually go through the Bible with me on a particular certain passage and dive deeper into that. Um, it's brought more meaning to, to the Bible um, versus me reading it on my own. Amen. Amen. And so Bible can saturate all of these as well. Um, Fellman, about six months ago, he had been a volunteer in our children's ministry. I wanted him, to, he entered this resident pastor program. I want him as a leader to get competent abilities in the area of speaking. And so we made him minister of announcements. If you're a pastor, you know what I mean by that. Minister of announcements. If you can make announcements spiritual on Sunday morning, you're, you're, you're growing. And he did. And then I told him uh, in one particular Sunday, I said, hey, before you go out there, what Bible verse did you memorize this week, today? And he, and he gave it to me. I said, go out there and tell them that. And tell him what it meant to you. And he did. He walked right out there. And it, it's like the accountability that he was growing. And he had somebody who cared about where if he sinned or didn't. Or if he had victory or didn't. And then the ability to communicate Bible was kicking in. With a discipler on his side. And, an, and, and the experience then he stepped into it. And was able to share biblical truth. And guess what? A spiritual gift showed up in a very powerful way that morning. All right. So again, this is... 101, Bible 101, leadership development. All right, third power tool, curriculum. If accountability gives you teeth, a Bible gives you a manual, curriculum gives you a pathway. Um, the issue, the beauty of curriculums is they have transferability. The beauty of curriculums is they show progress. The beauty of curriculums is it lets you show your obedience to it. Uh, Disciple First has produced uh, three different books that create a curriculum that takes you about a year. They're about eight weeks apiece, and you go through them over the course of six months to a year, and uh, you can see them out there on the table, but those tools are huge. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me, that's transferable truth, in the presence of many witnesses, that's public truth, Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That, that's transferability. Of course, in the history of the church, we've had a lot of these tools. In the first hundred years, we had the didache, which is the training of the twelve, or the teaching of the twelve apostles. It's a brief, anonymous, early discipling tool. It dates to about the first century. The oldest in, of these written catechisms we've seen come through the, the, the rung, this didache, had... How to had ethics, had teachings on baptism, how to do a baptism, how to do the Lord's Supper, had church organizational information in the didache. 
In the second and third century, we hear the early patristic fathers talking about a regula fide or a rule of faith. And Jude, for instance, uh, highlights this. He says, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once all delivered to the saints. Middle Ages, you see the catechisms start to take shape as discipling tools. Westminster Shorter Catechism would be an example of that. But tools are a big deal, all right? I'm intuitive. He's pretty intuitive, but let's say he's not. Let's say he's, he's more of a, um, he needs a book, he needs a it to be spelled out. And I've discipled a lot of guys who are not intuitive as disciplers. And as a discipler, I've got to bring up leaders who are intuitive and some that aren't intuitive. And so tools allow you to disciple both. Talk about the tools of discipling. Um, you know, curriculum. Curriculum. curriculum part really just for me provides a structure, um, a structure and format that, you know, this is our design is a year to year and a half. And, if, if you don't have a, a structure or a curriculum to follow, you can easily get lost, stop, discouraged, or, or whatever. But the tool that we use, um, again, it just provides a blueprint of consistency and, and intentionality. I love it. Makes you feel like you're going somewhere right. and then somewhere gives yeah, and gives a consistency. So when we're talking about top level and second level and third level leaders, uh, those are the molds. And if you don't disciple them right, and if there's not a consistency there, then every, everything else in the up-down or top-down, inside-out work of Jesus' church, which it is. Leadership in the church of Jesus is top-down, right? If you want to be servant of all, or if you want to be lead in the lead, you've got to be servant of all, Jesus says. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. So there, there's a top-down and an inside-out mentality to church. And curriculums and consistent pathways and tools create that, all right? Here's the next two. Let me give you the next two. The power of disciplines and the power of example. The power of disciplines. Of course, we know those. Prayer, Bible study, journaling, witnessing, scripture memory. Uh, that gives, discipline gives you muscle. Um, he, he's, he didn't introduce himself this way, but Fellman played for Michigan in the 90s as a college football player. Went on to play for a couple of NFL teams, Washington Redskins for one. Um, he is a man who's known a lot of physical discipline in his life. And he has consistently over this last year told me that it's as if he's finally getting the, the analogy. God gave you these physical bodies to be an analogy of being. That's how the reformers used to talk about it. Analogia intus, an analogy of your being. You have physical in order to point to the spiritual. And his physical prowess, his physical abilities, his physical discipline. And he's told me some things. I actually worked out with him this morning. And yeah, he's, he's way, way beyond my discipline in that area. But with that comes a neon sign pointing to spiritual disciplines. And when it connected, it's like a light bulb went off in his head. And it was beautiful. Listen to C.H. Spurgeon. I always quote him. I love what he says. He says, one of these days you may be unable to get rid of those habits which you are now forming. At first, the net of habit is made of cobwebs. You can break it. You can soon break it through. By and by, it is made of twine, though, over time. Soon it will be made of rope. And last of all, it will be made as strong as steel. And then you will be in, fatally ensnared. And he says discipline is the, is, keeps you out from underneath such iron webs. All right, Power of example. If disciplines give you muscle, examples give you authenticity. That you're walking and talking. You're an audiovisual Discipler, right? Avi, walking and talking. Listen to John 15, 12. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Listen, just as I have loved you. So in the first session, Craig pointed out some statements. As you see me, so do this. It's, it's the same kind of comment. As you've seen me do this, so do this. Um, John 13, 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. All right? It's interesting, that word there, for example, is a Greek word that means a pattern. I've given you the pattern. Listen to Second Peter. So Jesus' words, now Peter's words, say, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Two different Greek words. Same word in English, example, but two different Greek words. The Greek word here means to write underneath. It refers to an outline. You trace from one sheet of paper to another. We would say carbon copy, right? So talk to us about example and disciplines. 
Um, I guess the one that I would use that's really prevalent for me is, um, you know, I, I, as an athlete, I train just, you know, to compete at the top level, you know, it takes a certain prowess and, and discipline. But I, it wasn't until going through discipleship that there was a light bulb. And, and what really made it evident was that I look at my body now and there are certain aspects that someone may question <laughs> if I was an athlete. <laughs> and, you know, gut and what, what, what have you. And uh, one of the first things I, I thought about is that knowledge alone isn't enough. Knowledge alone doesn't have movement to it. I mean, I can take anyone in this room and I have the knowledge to train you without injury <laughs> to a peak performance. And yet today, I don't even do that. It's, it's, that is not an active part of my makeup. But once I got involved into discipleship and the discipline of discipleship, it, it has movement to it, meeting on a weekly basis, studying God's Word, being transparent of the things that I'm going through and dealing with, and being encouraged, and at moments being able to encourage, it has a tangible movement. And so it just, it's, it's created this, the same desire I had to dis- discipline myself as an athlete, God has allowed me to have a greater desire to be disciplined spiritually through discipleship. Amen. So to put these two together, the power of discipline and example, be as I am, do as I do, reproduce like I I am. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it yourself and we'll try something new and stretch you. So this creates uh, leadership development. All right. Power of friendship. It's kind of obvious. Having so fond an affection of you. First, uh, First Thessalonians two eight. Having so fond an affection of you, we were well pleased to impart um, to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. This man has become very dear to me, and that power. What this gives love, and as you develop leaders, you fall in love with them, and they fall in love with you, and there's cre- that creates a certain loyalty. Um, talk about our friendship. Um, I don't know. It's it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a sweet thing. I mean, we live in a world that's filled with titles. I mean, whether you're in corporate America and you have a CEO or president, or you're you're one yourself, and uh, there's a certain expectation that comes with that. And again, the fact that you know my friend, my brother, regardless of title, could come to me. And, and see something in me and say, I want to work with you, and I want you to work with me. Um, that has created, like I said, a lasting bond in, in friendship and brotherhood. And so, you know, oftentimes um, it's, just, it's just personal. It's just a personal relationship that uh, only God can create and allow, and uh, it's been very sweet. Amen. So if you're building a team, what a great foundation for a team, right? We love each other. We're together. We have a blast. We flew over here from the Houston area together, had a blast. Sharing a hotel room, had a blast. So that friendship gives love and it gives fun. I almost wrote that earlier on my notes. It gives fun. It makes it fun. Now, I will tell you, if you're new to the heart of discipling, we're about to move to the heart. If If you're new to the heart of discipling, it's not a class. Discipling, I, I actually am trying to oh, follow some of the, something that I told you earlier, is I don't use the word discipleship, because what you mean by discipleship and what I mean by it, I don't know. But the verb discipling, it, it, it speaks more. And so disciple is a verb, disciple is a noun. Jesus loved it. Jesus and, the, and, and Luke in the book of Acts, they used it over 261 times. They loved the word mathetasis, mathetano, these Greek words that mean disciple. We get the English word mathematics from it because his mentality of discipling up and, and adding up was more exponential than addition. And in the process, we got a great word. And so as, as we work together, our, our time, hour and a half at a restaurant once a week, that, that's, that's just 
it's, it's maybe more than 50%, might be more like 70%, but we have another 30% of our time where we're spending time together outside of that meeting, doing stuff, going on mission trips together, sharing our faith together. So I only disciple three to five guys a year because I, they become my best friends. All right. I've said enough about that. The last two are kind of obvious and I highlight them because they really give the power, power of the gospel and power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that verse that I just read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says we shared with you ourselves and also the gospel, right? Shares with you ourselves and also the gospel. In discipling and in leadership uh, of creating leaders who disciple, um, you're like Barney Fife with your one bullet. And it's called the gospel. And it is the very thing that, that has allowed him to grow like a weed, all right? And of course, the Holy Spirit... 1 Thessalonians 2, same passage, verse 13 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, Felman, not as a word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. What is that? What's the work there? Of course, Jesus in John chapter 4 said it's spirit and word, right? Spirit and truth. All right, so that's... That's the uh, steps there. All right, now let's talk about the heart. Over the years, we've been at it a while. I've been making disciples since 1993. And over the years, I've noticed that the leaders that are developed are the ones who grab responsibility, they grab courage, they grab maturity and ability and discipling and experience. But I, you can give them the tools of the carpenter, spiritual carpenter, all along, all day long. But until you can figure out how to translate the heart of the disciple, it doesn't go very far. Now, you've heard it said, I think it's Robert Coleman, master plan of evangelism, that said uh, most of Christianity is caught, not taught. I'm sure he, somebody said it before him. But as you catch it, that's part of the discipling beauty. The beauty, the secret sauce of discipling is that as you have close contact, there's no impact without contact. So as you have Contact, you get impact. And I can transfer those, um, the, the things that are intangibles, right? My love for the gospel, my love for Christ, I can transfer that as we spend time together. T-I-M-E, right? As I spend time together, I get to transfer that. I, I have a heart to invest in others and I get to transfer that. And that is all a part of it. Now, I've given you another acrostic. And it's the word guide. Let me explain the word guide. All good stories. I love, I love movies. Anybody a movie fan? Didn't Midway come out last night or tonight? Uh, yeah, I think it came out last night. It's Thursday, so it comes out tonight. Uh, I can't wait. I, I've always enjoyed war movies. I love all, I, I'm a sci-fi fan. I just like movies. And all good stories, whether you read them or you watch them, proceed basically the same way. There's a character. He has a problem. He's not sure if she or he knows what it takes. But then there's a guide who enters the story, and they've got a plan. At some point, and, and Craig mentioned it in the, first, in the first session, if you were here, at some point there is a call to action in leadership and in vision casting and in culture, you know, transferring culture. There's a call to action, and that guide in every good story gives that. Now, the question of success is at the end of the movie, will the person become a hero or not? And if they become a hero and later, if they have, you know, Star Wars, you know, movie 12, um, the hero becomes a guide in the next movie, which is what we're going to see in Star Wars this, this Christmas. But here's a key verse in that process. First Peter chapter four. All right. If you have a Bible, you might want to look at this. We'll spend the next uh, 20 minutes on this and hear about how this looks. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll give you some time to turn there. I'll read verse 10 to kind of get us going. Each one should use, use it or abuse it, should use whatever gift he has received from the Holy Spirit to serve others, to invest in others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. We call that the gospel. So, in the last two tools, we see the tools kind of mentioned here, Holy Spirit and gospel and those kinds of things. But the first grace of gospel guides is, is this gift. Write that down. Let me explain it. 
I've given you what I believe are the power tools of disciple making that leadership gives leadership development its its energy. But I, I want you to know that when it comes down to it, you are not the hero in your disciples' story, nor in your church's story, nor in your staff story. You're not the hero on your best day. You are a guide, right? You are not Rocky Balboa. You're Mickey, what was his name? Mickey Goldmill, right? Who helps them train and fight the Russian. You're not Neo. You're Morpheus in the Matrix. You're not Frodo. You're Gandalf. Right in the Lord of the Rings, you're not Luke Skywalker. You're that green munchkin thing. What's that? Yoda. All right, you're you're Yoda. Why? Because there's already a hero. There's already a story, and the meta narrative is that Jesus Christ is the hero in all your disciples' lives, in all your church's life, and everybody that's ever going to be led by the Church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero. And so we pastors use terms like under shepherd and those terms because we're sensitive to that. And so when you make a leader, the experience, the discipling, the abilities, the maturity, all of it goes towards you being a guide, not the hero. That's why the gospel in your one bullet becomes so huge because you point people and point people and point people back to Jesus and you use your gifts. Now, you know, the G in gifts here, G in the word guide is talking about spiritual gifts. And so when you're developing a leader, So I've discipled somebody. Maybe they've started volunteering. I'm wondering, will they in our church family, will they in this ministry, are they leadership material? Well, there's some spiritual gifts. I'm not going to spend time teaching you on spiritual gifts. Hopefully you know something about that. There are some spiritual gifts that move towards leadership, more of the, the gifts that help other people use their gifts. There's, there's certain gifts like the speaking gifts, like administration, like shepherding gifts and teacher gifts. Those are leader gifts. You've got to start there. Now that's just good ecclesiology. That's just good church doctrine that you know which seat on the bus they belong in by their spiritual gifts. Now I had a student just turn in a paper last week on the use of spiritual gift inventories. They wanted to write on that. I knew I'd be speaking to you, to you today. I said, sure. And they turned it in. And um, there's very little research out there on the effectiveness. That's what he found. There's nothing out there written on spiritual gift inventories and if they're effective or this or that. Uh, There's a lot of good spreadsheets, a lot of good websites that can help you determine that. But in the disciple-making culture, the relationship is the best spiritual gift inventory, right? I've given him some speaking opportunities, some experiences, And I discipled him with it, and I'm looking for the abilities. And when he doesn't show them, then I help him with those abilities. And I'm also looking for the maturity. Is he going to come and be a Mr. Ego with his minister of announcements? Is he going to, I'm going to give him two minutes. Does he take three minutes? What is the maturity and the honesty between, and and, and, in that process, I'm looking for gifts. And he has them. I had to help free him up a little bit because of some of the things that he'd been living in and playing with. But he, he freed him up. And just this last Sunday, some of the things he said before the Lord's Supper was precious. How, how does he get there without me being a guide? All right, I got to be his guide. And then the you is utterances. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do as one who speaks the utterances of God. Now, utterances, is that talking about the human's words or God's words? It's talking about God's words. Okay, so using your mouth to not speak your agenda, your words, but to speak God's words. Utterances here is a word that points to somebody who has the ability to speak for God and and hold his agenda in their heart. And so the heart of a leader in Christ is you say what Jesus wants you to say, no more, no less. Amen? And if I'm going to disciple somebody to be a teacher or a speaker, or a shepherd, or a leader in a ministry, they're going to lead a committee, or they're going to lead a team. I got to know that they aren't on their own agenda, and it flows through their mouth. Okay, so talk to us, Philman. What do you, these first two, when you think about how you've grown through discipling as a leader in terms of your spiritual gifts and your utterances, what would you say to the crowd? What's your testimony? Okay, um... I guess the first thing I would say is discipleship or, or being discipled is not comfortable. And, and, what, and what I mean by that, not 
the accountability part. Um, the, the part that has been very uncomfortable is the things that I, I'm dealing with. It's not comfortable to, to be a Christian, um, to have a saved family that we are intentional in, and yet have an extremely disobedient son and go through that process and still in that process. And so before, let me, let me get this. So before I, I was being discipled, that process was already in place. With your son? With my son. Yeah. That process was already in place. Um, it's not comfortable <coughs> to be in the middle of seasons of changing jobs and, 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 and going down that path. But yet, discipleship, what discipleship has done and is doing in my life personally, is giving me the ability to be comforted. There's a difference in being comfortable and yet being comforted. And so being comforted, discipleship is releasing those pressures, the stresses, because it helps me maintain a biblical perspective which I have a right to in Christ because I am in Christ. So I have a biblical perspective. And though the situation may not be changing the way that I hope or want them to, discipleship is helping me with the tangible aspect of trusting God, staying in his word, despite the pain, despite the hurt, but knowing that this too will pass at some point in time. So I'm trusting in the Lord and I have that accountability to help me maintain that biblical perspective when the challenges that I'm dealing with seem overwhelming because it's real. But my relationship and inheritance with Christ through discipleship is also real. Amen. Amen. So he's seeing his gifts coming into the area of discipling his own family and walking them through. I saw him last night and this morning, texting, calling his wife, shepherding her heart as they deal with a, a prodigal child who actually isn't even living in the home right now because of how bad it's gotten. But his gifts have come out in that area. He has definitely become more a man of prayer than he ever thought would be possible. He has prayed and prayed and prayed about that, but he's also spoken truth into his family. And it comes out as he's uh, leading in those announcements and shepherding. He's also our Sunday morning director. He kind of sits in the back directing the, the sound booth, the tech and all that. And he really has a soft heart in that to, to shepherd them as well. All right. So number three, let me give you that one. Influence. It's the eye and guide influence. Use your strength. Look at the rest of verse 11. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength with which God supplies. So God has given you a strength. He's given you influence. And when it comes down to it as a leadership development guide, I've got to look for what that is. If I were to, I, I, my prayer, he, I know he'll disciple. He's already got some guys in mind. But regardless, I know he's going to disciple. But I want to give him a community group as well. I want to give him a team to lead. Now, if I give him a team of 10 and he turns it into two, well, that's maybe not his strength, right? <laughs> if I give him a home group, a community group, and it multiplies three times, well, a community group, a home group would be his strength. I know what his strengths are. He calls me almost every two or three days. How can I pray for you, pastor? He's, he's a prayer warrior. I know what his strengths are. He's a man of faith, and he wasn't that way before. He was strong physically, but now he's become strong spiritually. That's his strength. All right, so discipling requires, leadership development and disciple-making church requires up-close and personal relationships. So you can watch them and see what their gifts are, what their utterances are. Are they speaking, the, and what are their influence? All right, the D stands for difficulty. Look at the rest of 1 Peter 4. It's all about hardship. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes on you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, Felman Malvo. Right? But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so as also at the revelation of the glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, because of illegal things, thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. All right? So difficulty is a telltale sign of where leadership is going. Maybe write this down off to the side. This is 
if I were to give my top three or four leadership lessons ever learned in my life, it's this is one of them. Where there's deliverance, there's ministry. Where there's no deliverance, there's no ministry. I heard that. I was in Mexico on a mission trip, and I heard through the translator, some one of the pastors say that, and I've never forgotten that. People, God even says, you know, when it comes to the Word of God, you, it's in your strength, it's in your weaknesses that you're strong. And where you've been weak and God has delivered you and provided for you, that is a telltale sign that that's part of your ministry. If God has delivered your marriage and you have a story to tell, then you use that. If your marriage is not delivered, you're not going to have any ministry there. If you have a terrible marriage, you cannot help other people in their marriage. There's no ministry where there's no deliverance. If you are still addicted to porn, still addicted to gossip, still addicted to negativity, whatever your addiction is, you aren't going to be able to help somebody else in that ministry. So if you want to have leadership development, you get deliverance. And where there's difficulty, there's deliverance. I've been watching him for almost a year now slave away through this hardship of his struggle with his child and his career. He's changing careers. And it's been beautiful to watch as God has shown him that he, God, is faithful to Fellman. And that's good leadership development. All right, one last one, and we'll take some, some questions you might have. The last is enthusiasm. When I'm a, as a guide, um, I bring to the table, whether it's Cracker Barrel last week or whether it's this trip, yeah, I bring my sins because I've got to have accountability. Uh, but one of the things that I have as a guide and that you have as a tool of leadership development that is very contagious. It's your enthusiasm. That's where I find that in verse 16, where it says, you are not ashamed. What's the opposite of being ashamed? Being enthusiastic, right? It's, it's, it's what led to a degree to the Protestant Reformation. In Martin Luther's uh, Cloaca Tower experience, He's up there and he's about to study and teach at the church of Wittenberg in the university there. He's about to teach on Romans and he's studying chapter one of Romans and he gets to verse 16 and 17 and it blows his mind and literally has blown up the world since then. He said, he reads that I am unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation. He said, I don't clue what that means. (laughs) And so he prayed and in his own struggles, in his own difficulties, in his own stomach issues, Martin Luther receives an answer, uh, what we call being born again. He receives an answer to the question, which is Jesus's own righteousness. He looks at that phrase. I was reading it this last week in, in, in one of his table talks. He, he's, he uses, sees that phrase, righteousness of God. And he said, I don't understand that. Righteousness of God is an ugly thing. Righteous, I, I'm angry at God for the righteousness of God. It's over me like a judge. And then he read Romans 1 and he chewed on it. And he came to a Holy Spirit-enabled conclusion that the righteousness of God is not something human, something divine. It's not something earned, it's something given. And thus began the Protestant Reformation, right? The the funny humorous story is cloaca is the Latin word for toilet. So the cloaca tower was the latrine tower, and he had an office, most likely a study above it. And he says in one 1932 table talk, he says... I had my conversion. I had this, this revelation of the righteousness that is not, uh, not earned, but granted by God, given as a free gift. I had it upon the cloaca, upon the toilet. Because of his difficulties with modern scientists, maybe they tend to point out that he had some sort of IBS or some sort of stomach issue. And in the middle of that, he found uh, the gospel, and the gospel found him. So enthusiasm, he was an enthusiastic horse. That's what I love about this guy. That's why I wanted you to see it with him, is to see it actually play out in leadership. Okay, so we've got, Craig, why don't you come up here? We've got about 11 minutes. If you heard Craig in the first time, first hour, um, ask us questions about leadership. You got, you got somebody who's a guinea pig, and uh, you can ask him as well. Just maybe, let me hear the question. I'll repeat it for the recording. The question is, does Disciple First have resources that describe this content? This particular content is not in our resources because they they vary from seminar to seminar. What we do have is we have a resource called um, Bold Moves, which talks about the steps you would need to take to transition church from an established church to a disciple-making church. 
and that identifies seven clear, bold moves you must make, which one of them includes uh, your leadership development. Well, several of them, those steps include leadership development. Uh, then we have uh, three resources. One is called Walk with God. One is called Reach Your World. One is called Invest in a Few, which is the basic curriculum. He mentioned curriculum that we use for training and raising up leaders in our Walk church. Walk with God is book one. Reach Your World is book two. Invest in a Few is book three. So basically, it talks, teaches how a lot of these principles he listed off. How would you walk with God? Yeah, there's a picture. How would you reach a world? It's all about personal evangelism. Uh, very effective tool of personal evangelism. And then invest in a few is how do you disciple another person, which again takes into a lot of this. We talked about accountability, we talked about confidentiality, all those types of things that he mentioned are embedded in book three. So this particular content is kind of spread out over those resources that we offer at our table. Amen. Now the question. Okay, the, the, the question is, how long have we known each other, and, and is there an end spot? Is there a launching out point? Is that the idea? Okay, so, so Jesus, in his model, he, uh, he spent three years with his disciples, and that's not technically true because he spent the first year, year and a half, choosing them and working and exploring you know, with them some of the truths of God. And then he calls them into a discipling relationship, and there's an invitation, follow me. And then, of course, a year and a half later, uh, he launches out literally up into heaven through the ascension. And so now they're left alone to go do it. So uh, I look at that, and I see an 18-month plan. And when I am discipling somebody and I see leadership potential, I'm seeing this leader made. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing this person is, they're going to be a discipler in their home. Sure, they're going to have their kids. They got to disciple their kids. They're going to launch out and disciple somebody else. But I see leadership potential and I see spiritual gifts that lead, them, lead themselves and I see the utterances of God and I see influence and I see difficulty that, that can translate into some gut-wrenching ministry. And I see enthusiasm even coming. They're becoming a guide themselves. Then my goal is to give them more experiences in discipling towards that. So I, I normally, I normally disciple somebody for a year, but if they have leadership potential, we go a year and a half. And so here we're about a year in. So we got about six more months together and then there will be a launching out point. Uh, I generally meet with them even after that year and a half. I'll meet with them about once a month. Um, till I know they're discipling somebody and I know they're set in a ministry as a leader. And then from there at that point, our church has other discipling experiences that leaders can receive. Um, we have uh, a guy who works and disciple him for six months on how to, how to teach better. So we have every, every, every problem in our church becomes a discipling answer. And we, we pick a, a lady and a guy that can help them in those problems. And so if here in a year he's teaching and Maybe he's not feeling it. We're not feeling it in his small group or whatever he's leading. He can be discipled uh, by somebody else in our church who can help him for about six months learn to write a better message and work, work that way. So discipling is the answer to all leadership issues in the church. That's our, that's our conclusion. I think that's very biblical. That answer your question? Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Not every, what he said is that it's special to a degree to me. And there are about six or seven other guys in our church and about six or seven other ladies in our church that are leading disciplers. And I have very intentionally said, I want you to do your best to find the leaders, potential leaders in our church to disciple them specifically. And it happens to be those men that I'm talking about are all our elders, our church elders. And our church elders, typically of the one or two people, the two or three people they disciple, most of those are, are potential leaders as well. And so I get our leading disciplers to disciple our potential leaders. Our leading disciplers to disciple our potential leaders, specifically because they're, they're our best. And I want those models. Why? Because it creates a mold and there's a loss of degree of quality as the generations go down. So I want the best degree of quality at the top so that it trickles down that way. Great question. Yes. What role does your wife play in your, your discipleship of other men? And how often is, a, is the man you're discipling in your home? What role? The question is for the recording. What role does my wife play in my disciple of him? Or, or just of men in general in the church? 
Um, I don't know, uh, not really much of a role. I mean, she she's a prayer warrior. My wife is. Um, our church. I started with our staff. I had a I had a group. 12 years ago, our church was not a disciple-making church. We had the, the three-to-thrive model, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, right? We had three, in, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Sunday school, so four, four to thrive. Um, and in the process, we had, we had 28 committees. We had uh, monthly business meetings, and we only had 200 people. I, it, I did the numbers on our bylaws and, and constitution bylaws. It took over 100 people to fill those committees, it was insane. So my first couple of years, it was a it was a nightmare of trying to navigate all that. But I just discipled. And about year three, I had discipled uh, two, three in our staff and three outside of our staff. So two groups of three. I did that year one. Did that year two. Year three, I had about because um, they had discipled. Not not every one of them, but most of them had discipled. So year three, we had twenty eight men discipling in year three. It's a slow process. It's a grassroots kind of thing. But year three, I remember year three, three women, three women came up to me and said, I don't know what you're doing in my husband's life, but he is totally different. He's praying. He's apologizing. He's leading. He wants, he's the one wanting us to get up and go to worship. He he's, he's wanting to go on mission. What in the world are you doing? I want in. And my wife had discipled a few, but by that point, her disciples were ready as well. And so those disciples of my wife, uh, there was about seven of those ladies. There were about 28 of us men and seven of ladies. And so they just started discipling the wives of these other men, and it became a team effort. And, of course, by year five, the women were ahead of the men, you know, and they do much better. They get the relational aspect of relational discipling. But, yeah, that's kind of what I'm wondering. They get to yeah. see you interact with your wife. And yeah. My, I will say my wife cooks a lot, too, so we have people over. We. She's, she makes some mean chicken and dumplings, and so she'll help cook that way and, and is very hospitable. So my home is wide open. Question? How much of what you do with all the different men you've discipled over the years is consistent with each one, and then where you pull off to do what specific do you pull off? You have, you have consistent things you do. So the question is, over the years, how consistent have I been? Yeah, you, you've yeah. the same material with each one. Sure. Same material, and I usually add a book at the end, an extra book for that last six months. So we go a year through the main book, these kind of books. I've used these a number of times. And then at the end of those three books, that's about a year for me, I add a book depending on if they're leaders. So, you know, I, like two years ago, I discipled two elders that I knew would be elders. And so we went through an eldership book. And they were, had already become leading, they'd become disciplers by year one. So how consistent, you know... It's a science and an art, and it's a lost art. Discipling is a lost art. It got booted in the 1950s out to parachurch collegiate ministries. And so most of the groups here are navigators and Campus Crusade. And those are, I, was, I was one to Christ and discipled by Campus Crusade. And so that's my background. And they're great at it. But over the years, you've got to learn. You know, I'm, I'm, as a leader, I'm being made. Uh, my, my maturity and abilities and my discipling and my experiences have gotten better. So I'm a better discipler now than I was 20 X number of years ago when I first started. So I'm, I'm consistent on a couple of things, really consistent, mutual accountability. He, he has helped me in my own spiritual sin struggles than anybody else this year. And he's a really good accountability partner, great accountability partner. I don't always have that great of one, but I always confess my sins to my disciples. Um, I, I am uh, as with a PhD in systematic theology. I love to dig and think. And the material that we walk through, I'm always digging deeper. And you should see the notes that I've taken as I've dug deeper and deeper. So I'm always, you can't plummet the depths of God. And so you study Martin Luther and justification by faith alone, and you study those passages in Romans, you cannot get any deeper. Or you can't, you can't go to the bottom. You can keep going deeper. And so I keep getting deeper and, uh, and more practical too. So I grow. I, so I don't know consistency-wise, same tools, you know, same amount of time, same kind of work. Yes. All right. We are one more question. We'll call it a day here. Can you describe what that first meeting is like? How do you set With a leader in particular or anybody I disciple? Anybody. So the question is, what does the first meeting look like? I, I, I get a begin where I 
began here today. I'm going to end where I began. Stories. My first two or three or four meetings with him and a guy named Chris, and his, we have a triad, a group of three. And with Chris and Fellman, our first three meetings were just our stories. And I'm really good at asking discipling questions about stories. And so we plummeted the depths of his spiritual experience, and then we did with Chris, and then we did with this Chris. So I told my story last, and uh, that's what we did. We just told our spiritual journey stories. So that's what the first meeting looked like. Now, before that, I took him to lunch, and I said, hey, do you want to be discipled? Do you want me to be your spiritual running partner? There was an invitation, and once he said yes, then we began the spiritual conversation. And the tool started week four for us. You know, that's how it started. All right, we are out of time. You feel free to stick around, ask a few questions. Hey, let's give it up for Dr. Booty. Thank you, Chris. That's it for today's episode. Check out Disciple First's founder's book, Invest in a Few by Craig Etheridge, when you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Invest in a Few. Thanks for listening. Until next time.